If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been walking through the book of Galatians. We've been going through it exegetically or expositionally. What we're doing is we're trying to get at the thought and the mind of the author. And so we're following his argument through the book. And through the first five verses of the first chapter, we found that Christians gain gain freedom through subjection. As we bring ourselves under the teaching of Paul who writes the very words of God because he's an apostle. Then the next week we looked at verses 6 through 9 and we figured out that there is no other gospel aside from the true gospel that Paul preaches. Then the week after that we covered a few more verses, which was last week. We did 10 through 24 and we learned that this gospel is not man's gospel. And we learned that God changes everything when he steps into our lives. That we're made pleasing to Him on behalf of Jesus Christ. And because we're pleasing to Him, we're able to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. And so we have the passion to please. And Paul shares his testimony in that verse. And here in chapter 2, we're going to do verses 1 through 10 today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to see gospel unity as our theme or the main idea of the text. As the apostles in Jerusalem are going to extend to Paul the right hand of fellowship. So before we get started this morning, if you would bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you have spoken to us in your word and that you spoke to us perfectly in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for an honest work of your Holy Spirit this morning that we might know you, walk with you, be in fellowship with you and in fellowship with one another. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me the first five verses. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those that seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Have you ever had a bad dream? Have you ever had a nightmare? I'm sure you have, your people. I, I have one, and I think it's pretty common, where you wake up, and you're in a cl- or I guess you're in a classroom. You don't wake up when you're dreaming. You're in a classroom, right? And there's a test being passed out. And very slowly it dawns on you that you haven't studied for this test. And the sweat begins to beat up on your forehead. Your hands begin to shake just a little bit. Your heart rate accelerates. And then usually, for me anyway, right as the test gets to me, I usually wake up before anything bad happens, right? The text that we're looking at today, we're going to see a little bit of Paul's fear, a little bit of what could be Paul's nightmare. Because had things worked out differently, had he wrote to us in a different way, he would have had his worst fears realized. You see, it was thought that the Jerusalem apostles were on a different page from Paul. That the gospel they were preaching was different from Paul's gospel. Because these Judaizers, we've talked about them, they were saying that circumcision was also required to be saved. It wasn't good enough to just believe in Jesus, but also you had to become 
Jewish. And so what they're doing when they go up to Jerusalem is they're figuring out what exactly does it mean to be saved? What exactly is the gospel? So Paul's fear is that what he's heard may be true. He hasn't been to Jerusalem in 14 years. That Peter and James and John might be preaching something other than the true gospel of God. Which would indicate, because they're apostles, that the foundation of the church had a crack in it. We all know what happens to buildings that don't have a good foundation. They fall down, of course. And this is Paul's fear would have been coming to life. So these verses reveal, is there a crack in the foundation? Or is there unity among the people of God? What is the nature of the gospel? So we see in verse 1 that after 14 years, 14 years is a long, long time. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. But why does he go up? Verse 2 tells us because of a revelation set before him. So basically he has a revelation from God. There's not details given that tell him you need to go up to Jerusalem. So he listens and he obeys. That's a good word right away, right? When God tells you to do something, you listen and you obey. So he's going up and part of verse 3, I guess it's verse 2, I'm sorry, tells us in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain or pointlessly, And so this makes us think, is Paul unsure about his gospel? Is he sure? Well, no. Paul is definitely sure he preached for 14 years, right? He didn't go around from town to town for 14 years being beaten and imprisoned and almost stoned to death. He didn't go through all that unsure about his message. He was sure, but he went up because of a revelation. And he goes up not to see, says, to make sure I didn't run in vain. Well, he would have run in vain if the Jerusalem apostles disagree with him. If there's a crack in the foundation, if they have abandoned the true gospel of God, then his ministry, he knows, will be in vain because the history of the world itself will be different. Because it would have fractured Christianity and it would have made it look just like a lot of other religions, dependent upon what we do to earn favor with God. He says he takes Barnabas and Titus along with him to Jerusalem. Well, who's Barnabas? Uh, In case you don't know, uh, in Acts, he's wildly generous. He sells a field and gives all the money to the church. He's also the guy that comes and he puts his arm around Paul. Everybody else is kind of unsure about Paul because he's been killing Christians. And then he says, I'm a Christian and I'm preaching Christ. So they're a little hesitant. But Barnabas comes and he puts his arm around Paul and he brings him into the fold. Uh, One of my good friends, uh, Dr. Marita, says that of Barnabas, he says, Barnabas would have been voted most huggable in high school. I really like that description. Everybody loves Barnabas, so why not bring him along? And then secondly, he brings Titus. Titus is a little bit more interesting. Why bring along Titus? We see Titus, he ends up uh, looking over a lot of the churches that Paul establishes. He actually has a book of the Bible named after him, so you know he's a pretty legit guy. But he brings Titus along to make their debate real. Remember, the Judaizers are saying that to follow Christ, you have to be circumcised. You have to be Jewish. And they're also saying that James and Peter and John, they all agree with us, not with Paul. He's preaching that half gospel stuff. He's just trying to please man. Remember last week? He's trying to please man. And Paul's saying, I'm not pleasing man. And he's going up to find out, do they agree with me about the nature of the gospel? And Titus, being a Greek, is uncircumcised. And so this is where the rubber is going to meet the road. Will they require Titus to be circumcised or not? So they can't have this kind of abstract, just 
theoretical discussion because immediately after they decide what's going to happen, there's going to be immediate ramifications. And so Paul, I think it's just very wise, he takes Titus along with him. Say, this is somebody, is he a Christian or is he not? Does he need to be circumcised or not? You decide. And so he gets up there because of the revelation set before him, though privately, he gets together privately with the other apostles. I, I picture this kind of like, um, I guess kind of like a military unit, getting together and getting on the same page before they go before everyone else on a council. They want to make sure that they know their objective, that it's clear, and that they're all working together as a team to accomplish that objective. They can't simply just go in and not know and be on different pages. They need to agree about the nature of the gospel. And Paul sets before them, he says, this is what I've been preaching to the Gentiles. And then they say, this is what we've been preaching to the Jews. And what they find out is that there's no crack in the foundation. They're on the same page about the nature of the gospel. Paul, if he was a better writer, he might have, risen, he might have brought some rising action, right? He might have increased the drama. But he doesn't. He just... Cuts to the chase in verse 3. says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So he tells us what happened, right? They didn't force him to be circumcised. They put Titus before him and they said, Titus is a Christian. He doesn't need to do anything else. It's not Jesus plus becoming Jewish. It's just Jesus is what makes you a Christian. Look what Paul says in verse 4. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. You see, these false brothers, the Judaizers, they might today look a little bit more like self-professed Christians. Those that put on Christ, but don't really, truly follow Him. Part of what they do is they subvert the gospel. They change it. They tweak it. So that it no longer reflects God's message to us. It no longer is God's gospel or Paul's gospel. It turns into man's gospel. Man's gospel cannot save. They wouldn't require Titus to be circumcised because they wouldn't submit him to slavery. In our culture, um, it looks a little bit more like to be a Christian, you need to dress the way I dress. You need to drink the things that I drink. You need to eat the foods that I eat. If you're a Christian in America, it probably means that you have a Jesus fish on the back of your car. Um, You probably listen to the Christian radio station and you likely have a mug with like an eagle on it. And maybe, you know, like a psalm. Because that's what, that's what Christians do. That's part of Christianity. We so attach our American predispositions to what it means to follow Christ that when we take it, the gospel overseas to other cultures, they can't distinguish between what's American and what's the gospel. You see, you see what's going on there is the same thing with the Judaizers. To be a Christian, you need to be Jewish. No, that's a false gospel. That's a misunderstanding. We're guilty of the same thing, right? I've seen missionaries go overseas and they try to get the indigenous people to worship in the same way that we worship, sing the same songs, have the same order of worship, and it just doesn't work. This culture, they don't want to put on our culture. The gospel is not cultural, it's cross-cultural, it's timeless. It applies to all people in all places at all times. We have to contextualize the gospel. We take the message that Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We take that to another culture. And we change some of the preferential things. How we dress, what we eat, the type of music we might listen to. Paul even does this. You'll notice here that he doesn't require Titus to be circumcised. He has Jesus. But funny thing, there's another guy named Timothy. 
that Paul does have circumcised. Why? He's in a different context. Timothy is ministering to the Jews. He wants to go into the Jewish temples. So part of what will get him into that Jewish temple? Circumcision. So you see, the issue is not circumcision. Paul doesn't care about that. It, that's just, it's just circumcision. It doesn't save or not save. But for Timothy, it was necessary to go among the people to preach the gospel that they might know Jesus. For Titus, it's not necessary. He's a Greek. He can go among a different people. And here, he's not required because it would have been to give the Judaizers victory. It would have been to show a crack in the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. A crack in the foundation of the gospel. Those that bring us into slavery or spy out that freedom, they also change the gospel often in another way. And it it looks more like there are seven ways to a healthy marriage. Or five ways to gaining your, your best life right now. We don't preach that because that's going to put you on an emotional treadmill of guilt. You're going to try and try and try to do those seven things or those three things or however many things that you can do, and you're going to fail over and over and over. And you're going to have that guilt, and you're going to wear it because you just can't do the things you need to do to have your better life. That's where the gospel comes in and says, you can't do it. And Jesus comes, and he takes that guilt from our shoulders, and he puts it on his own. He came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And He raised to life on our behalf that we might too will raise. Just as He did. We take His good works. We take His perfection. And He takes our unrighteousness. He takes our guilt and our shame. And He dies on our behalf. We take His obedience. He obeys where we fail. The gospel is the only place that is truly free. By submitting ourselves to Christ, that's the only time we can truly please God. Otherwise, we're in that system of earning, and we're running on that treadmill, and we're never going to get anywhere. We're going to continue to fail. Our culture is not the gospel. Earning is not the gospel. We have to distinguish these things. There cannot be a crack in the foundation. We are free in Christ to live as He lived because of His great love for us. Paul did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He went to Jerusalem to preserve the gospel of the apostles. They preserved this message for you and for me that we might know God. Do you understand how vital that is to your life? We talk about knowing God in kind of just this weird way where we go to church for an hour a week and that's knowing God. That's not knowing God. Knowing God is walking with Him moment by moment. Reading His Word. Learning who He is as a person. I wouldn't be much of a husband if I only hung out with my wife for about an hour a week, would I? No. I want to get to know her. I want to spend time with her. Sometimes. She she can be mean sometimes. But most of the time, I want to get to know her. I want to be around her. And that's how we ought to live as we get to know know God through the gospel. That's what's been preserved for us. We can't allow others to spy out our freedom. To slip in. We have to be 
We have to be, I guess, vigilant about it. You know, this happened, I think a great example of this is um, a lot of the evangelical universities, think of Harvard and of Yale and of Brown and of Dartmouth, all started out as Christian universities. Not so much today. I mean, this, this even happened in our, our Southern Baptist seminaries recently, right? There was a period of time where um, false teachers slipped in and they started questioning things about the inerrancy of Scripture. And it wasn't until uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken and Paige Patterson and some of those other guys got together and formed the conservative resurgence, right, that we returned to orthodoxy. Wolves will come in among the sheep. Remember, evil doesn't always look like evil. It often looks angelic. It often sounds good to our ears. It tickles them. But the gospel, it's often a stumbling block. It's hard truth because it's not man's gospel. It tells us we can't and that only Jesus can. The truth was preserved for you. It's preserved for you. This makes me think of the Mona Lisa in France. You know, it's kept in the loo and it's only been moved twice. I actually stole this illustration. So according to Dr. Morita, it's only been, been moved twice, right? Once it was moved to come over to the United States And once it was moved to go to Tokyo. Now, when they moved the Mona Lisa, did they mess with it at all? Do you think? you think somebody said, you know what? I can't tell if she's smiling or frowning, but I really think she's smiling, so we're going to make it a little more obvious. Smiley face right here. Perfect. And you know what? This is a really happier scene. It's not drudge and dreary. Let's draw a little sun right here. Maybe a little flower. No, nobody did that. It's ridiculous, right? They guarded it. They preserved it. They didn't deface it. They didn't change it. The same is true of the gospel. It's not changed. It's preserved for us, entrusted to us. That Much like the Mona Lisa, we might preserve it and put it on display for all to see. I was a server for a long time, and you know, all we do is go into the kitchen and the chef hands us the food. And if you're a good server anyway, you don't mess with the food, no. You you take it to the table and you, you set it down. The same is true of the gospel that's been preserved for us and entrusted to us. That we are obedient to God and we take that message and we don't we don't change it, but we preserve it. We share it with others. What are you doing? with what has been entrusted to you, Christian? What are you doing with what has been entrusted to you? The great Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. How do you stand up to that test? Are you sharing what you've been entrusted with? Are you honoring it? Are you loving it? Do you cherish it? Do you behold it? Because it's beautiful. Or is it just some picture on a shelf in a back room that's not often visited? What are you doing with what you've been entrusted with? Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they too, the circumcised, they've been entrusted with the gospel, and they recognize their distinct roles. They each have a part to play. See, Paul is going to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish folk with the message of the gospel. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Otherwise, you've completely lost it. Paul takes that message to the Gentiles. And you know what You know what the other apostles in Jerusalem do? Those that seem to be of influence. We'll get to that in a second. They go to the Jews. And they say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And they preach the same gospel. You see, they have different roles. They've been entrusted with the gospel, but they have different roles. In the same way, we have different roles in the church. One is gifted at this, and another is gifted at something else. It's important for us to recognize our roles and do our jobs. Recognize our roles and serve one another in love. Now, why does Paul keep saying this? And those... I'm sorry, and from those who seem to be influential. We've seen that phrase a bunch of times. I think it's twofold. One is um, the Judaizers had been invoking this name of authority. Like, you know, you have to be a Christian. You have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised. And James and Peter and John, they all agree with us. They're invoking the name of someone in authority. My wife is, or used to be, a nanny, some of you might know. And uh, she takes care of, I think, like a three-year-old, five-year-old. Age range doesn't really matter. Uh, but the little girl one day, Chelsea's in the next room, and she can kind of hear everything that's going on there in the playroom. The little girl decides, like, I want to clean up the toys right now. And so she says to her brother, Brother, let's clean up the toys. And her brother says, Child, please. Like, no, I'm playing. So what the little girl does is she takes a moment to gather herself. She says, Brother, listen for it. Miss Chelsea said that we have to clean up the playroom. You know what happened? Little boy started cleaning up the toys. He started doing what she wanted him to do. Now my wife, she might seem really sweet and like cuddly and just like a, just a, really, like a Barnabas, you know, put your arm around you, just a huggable person. But girl will lay down the law, right? She'll drop the hammer. So she scooped that little girl up, put her in timeout so fast she didn't know what happened. Anyhow, the point is, point of that illustration is that the Judaizers are doing the same thing. They're invoking the name of someone in authority to try and gain a following. James and Peter and John are with us. Follow us. And Paul's sitting there and going, no, no, no. James, Peter, and John, first of all, they didn't say all that, right? There is no crack in this foundation. We have the right hand of fellowship. We are unified in the gospel. It's the gospel that brings us together why we're together so that we can know God no and if they are if the Jerusalem, if the Jerusalem apostles if James Peter and John if they are saying something different Paul's already told us this 6 through 9 he says well then they can go to hell they can be anathema if they're preaching a gospel other than the one that was entrusted to us other than the one that we have received other than the one that's been preserved for us God shows no partiality. 
Paul's been using this phrase, those who see the influential, somewhat sarcastically. He recognizes that these other folks see them as people of, of authority, and he does too, and he respects that authority. But their authority extends only as far as their obedience to the Lord. I think the point here is, is easy. Do not worship men. We cannot be followers of celebrity pastors or the local pastor or our friend that we really admire. All are going to let us down. All are going to fail us. The only one that we can trust completely is Jesus. They gave the right hand of fellowship. There is no crack in the foundation. They're on the same page. So the first nine verses, the whole point of the first nine verses, if you haven't paid attention to this point, here I'm going to sum it up for you. The whole point of the first nine verses, right hand of fellowship. We're on the same page. We agree about the nature of the gospel. Now, this is the hardest part of the message this morning. So maybe I would have you listen. They figure out, this is hard for me this week. They figure out the nature of the gospel. And then in verse 10, the very next thing they do, it's all right, we figured out the gospel. Listen to what they say. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, before I bring out some of the hard parts, this is primarily in reference to the poor, I'm sorry, the poor people in Jerusalem. People were coming in, they were being converted to Christ, and then they were staying there. And they couldn't find jobs. Following Christ will cost you something. They couldn't find jobs, they were very poor. And so they're exhorting Paul to care for them. Paul later in Galatians will say, let us do good to all those that are in need, especially to those that are of the household of faith, especially Christians. But not exclusively Christians. Paul doesn't meet this request with apathy. He doesn't do like the the Eeyore thing. It's Eeyore, right? The Winnie the Pooh character that's like, Okay, I'll care for the poor. No, Paul is excited. He's eager. They don't even have the words out of their mouth. And Paul's going, yeah, the poor, I want to care for them. Caring for the poor, remembering the poor and the fatherless and the widow is part of Christianity. It's supposed to mark us. The Bible's clear on this repeatedly, and the church is soft on it repeatedly. Why is it that we know the names of more celebrities than orphans? Why is it that I can name you know, people's most interesting people, but I can't name all that many widows? How are we caring for the poor? We should care for them because we should identify with them. Remember all the way back in Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the middle class and white Republican in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. No. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that come before God with nothing. Spiritually bankrupt. Only with their hands out to the Lord that they might receive His bountiful grace. You are the poor. I am the poor. Or had you forgotten? 
that you have nothing to offer God and that he has given you everything. Have you forgotten that Jesus became poor for you? That he humbled himself, taking the form of a man. He was born in a borrowed manger. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He had the Last Supper in a borrowed apartment. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was poor. He had no place to lay his head. He was the least of these. He was the Son of God. Jesus says in Matthew, the 25th chapter, 31 through 46, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come! You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and a sojourner and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me also. Then to those on his left he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. Justice will be served by our just God. Verse 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will say to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, you did it to me also. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Are you eager to care for the poor? Are we agreed about the nature of the gospel? It's been preserved for you. What are you doing with what you've been entrusted with? Would Paul be able to extend to you the right hand of fellowship? Jesus came as the poor person that we might care for the poor. And he gives us all the riches of heaven. He intercedes for us on our behalf. We need only trust in Him to have everlasting life, to have everything. To depart from Him, to reject Him, is to remain poor and have nothing. Which will you choose? To become rich by being poor and serving the poor? 
or to become nothing by choosing a life of happiness and easiness. Following Christ will cost you something. You will not get out of this life without any scars. Do you think that you would escape and Jesus would not? His scars will last throughout eternity. Remember, Thomas puts his hands where the nails were driven in. And in the hole in his side. Following Christ will cost you something. It won't always be easy. It's not going to be easy to preserve the nature of the gospel. Who will you follow this morning? Man's gospel? Or the gospel of God? The gospel of Jesus Christ, who became poor on your behalf. Would you pray with me as we prepare to sing our last hymn this morning? God, we thank you that you are good and that you're generous, that you gave everything that we might inherit everything, that we might inherit eternal life together with you, that we might be joined together in the gospel, that we might shake the right hand of fellowship. Lord, we thank you that we can be together for the gospel. Help us to be obedient. Help us to serve the poor and to remember our lowly station, that we have nothing apart from you. That Jesus plus nothing equals everything. God, help us to walk with you. To hold you up. To behold you as beautiful. The Mona Lisa has nothing on you, our beautiful and wonderful God. Help us to enjoy you. We praise you and we thank you for your eternal goodness. Amen.